welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you have a Bible, uh, you're going to need that. If you don't, there are some back here. Uh, and if you like to knit, there's a knitting, some knitting projects over there, just some things to keep in mind. Um, if you are new this morning, we'd love to know who you are. Um, I'm trying to see if they're, I don't think, I think everybody's, you know, sort of somewhat regular. But if, you're, if I can't see you and you're, you're new, there's cards on your table. If you want to fill those out, that would be great. Uh, let us know who you are. And then uh, if you have uh, come this morning ready to participate in what God's doing at Awaken financially, both of those can go in those buckets there. That'd be great. Um, so I want to invite you to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 18, and uh, we're in a, a series on 1 John, excited, and uh, this has been a, a really fun study for me. I hope you guys have enjoyed it as well. Um, and I'm going to ask you just briefly, if you would, stand and we'll read uh, the passage that we're going to study this morning, and then uh, offer a brief word of prayer, and we'll jump in here. So this is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. It says this, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death, and anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Pray with me if you would. Uh, This is actually a prayer from a book called Gorillas of Grace. He writes, O God, let something essential happen to me. Something more than interesting or entertaining or thoughtful, but rather something real. Speak to my condition, Lord. Change me somewhere inside where it matters. Let something happen which has an impact on my real self. God, this is our prayer this morning that you might um, meet us at the very core of who we are. Speak words of love and of encouragement and of grace um, and of beckoning, of of welcome to us. Uh, We pray in your name by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat if you would. So there's a couple different parts of this passage that I want to kind of unpack for us this morning, and they kind of go like this. For the first section, which is most of the passage, John kind of sets up a theological progression that he works through, and I'm entitled this The Tale of Two Brothers. So he brings up Cain and Abel. Interesting that he does that, but uh, we'll explore that. And, And it's all sort of packed in this theological idea that John's trying to get at that he's talking to these people that he's writing to. Remember, he's writing to a group of people who are spread throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, a number of different churches, and he's writing to encourage them. He's writing to um, to remind them of who they are and uh, what God has done. So he does that, and this theology piece is really important. And then sort of at the end of that, he goes to, um, here's what this looks like in community, right? Any good pastor talks about theology, and here's how this all works out. And then here's how it plays out in real life, right? 
And so John takes a practical example and gives it to the people that he's writing to. So that's kind of how we're going to work through it. So let's start in verse 11. John says, this is the message we have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Now, if you've been paying attention in this study, you might remember this phrase in the beginning or from the beginning. John opens the book this way. If you look at verse one of chapter one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have testified to. So John's got a little bit of a play on words going here. He's got, he's talking about the practical or the particular in this one reference of in the beginning. He's talking about something he's already said. And he's referencing, of course, chapter one, where he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the the eternal one, the incarnated one of God, who we testify to, who we've seen, we've heard, we've touched. This is the guy who's given us this message, and that's from the beginning. So when you heard the gospel, when I talked to you about it the first time, when Jesus became real to you in the beginning, right? So it's this particular, this practical thing that he talks about, and he taps into that. If you know, uh, or if you buy the, the idea that John wrote the Gospel of John as well, you should also remember that he opens the Gospel of John in a very similar fashion, right? In the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him and by him. So John's got a couple things going on here. He's talking about, I just said this in chapter 1 of 1 John. I'm talking about also something that I've, I've already mentioned in, in, in the Gospel of John. And this all pertains to Jesus and the particularity of Jesus. But then he's doing something very, very general as well. Does this sound at all familiar to the story of Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. So not only is John saying, in the beginning, this is the message you've heard, this is the one Jesus has sent you, he's talking about that, but then he taps into this thing that's, this is a story you have heard from the beginning, literally, like from the beginning of time, and it's a story you're all familiar with. It's a story we're all familiar with, and he taps into these two brothers, this, this story or these two characters, Cain and Abel, who I would, I would submit to you, um, it's helpful for us not to think about them as particular Cain and Abel, two people who actually lived and were, you know, one had blonde hair, one had brown hair, but rather a bigger view of it. I'm not arguing that they didn't exist or that they did, but I think it's more helpful for us to understand Cain and Abel as archetypal human beings, right? Humans or two characters in a story that tell us or give a picture, give like real flesh and blood kind of interaction to a greater human experience. And that's what John is tapping into. In the beginning, this is the message that you've heard, love one another. Because then in verse 12, he says, don't be like Cain, which seems like it's coming out of left field unless you get what he's done in that, in that one phrase, in the beginning. So he enters Cain and Abel into the story and he says, don't be like Cain. I had an older brother who used to say that to me. Don't do that. Don't be like that guy. Or, you know, Goodwill Hunting, if you remember that. He says, you know, number one, don't do that. Don't be like that guy. So John says, hey, listen, listen, don't be like Cain. Cain and Abel, this, the tale of two brothers, but really, I would argue or submit, offer, uh, the tale of two humanities, the tale of two different kinds of humans. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel actually... Um, happens in Genesis 1, or excuse me, Genesis 3, 4 and following, but it actually gets played out over and over and over again, right? Two brothers, sibling rivalry, kind of um, things that go awry and tension between the two, and really two different kinds of people, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. Uh, You've got Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 30 and following, um, in Deuteronomy, the, the, the metaphor kind of changes and it becomes less personal and more general when uh, Moses or the author of, of, of Deuteronomy says, today I offer before you life and death, 
blessing and curse. Two different kinds of humanity, right? Then Paul, later on in the New Testament, takes this metaphor, that's this story that's been told over and over again, and he changes the two characters, and he uses Jesus and Adam, right? Essentially, what's happening is this classic, like, this or this. I offer you this or this. I offer you Cain or Abel, uh, Jacob or Esau, Isaac, Ish- you see what's kind of going on here. So less about particulars and more about two different kinds of humanity that's being offered here. Now, interesting about Cain and Abel, though. Let's dig a little bit here because there's some juicy little nuggets that I want to kind of explore. In Hebrew, um, the name of a person is critical. It means, it means everything. For example, the name of uh, uh, Jacob means deceiver or heel, right? So Jacob the deceiver or the heel becomes Israel, which means one who wrestles with people and with God and who is not overcome. Um, the name Isaac means laughter, right? Um, you know, you're going to have a baby. No way we're not going to have a baby. Like, I'm 100, and have you seen my wife? She's really old too. Uh, this isn't going to happen, okay? Laughter, Isaac. So names in Hebrew mean a great deal, and yet when they're translated for us in English, from Hebrew to English, it's just Cain and Abel, and we know them as Cain and Abel, but there's nuggets here. So Cain, the literal word Cain in Hebrew is Cain, or Cain, and it means um, to grasp or to grab to sort of take hold of or to gain, right? So Cain means gain. Abel, the Hebrew word havel, means um, vapor or fleeting. Uh, Translated sometimes like in Ecclesiastes, the same word is used, havel, and it's vanity, vanity, right? So you have these two different names. You have gain and you have vapor. Now, if you want to follow the metaphor of two different kinds of people, Abel's the one who loves God out of sacrifice. He's the one who recognizes that this whole thing is a gift and he gives his first and his best to God. That's why his offering was accepted, right? He recognizes that life and and the gift that God gives us as life is like vapor. You can't grab it. You can't hold on to it. It just exists. It just is. And when you try to get it and grasp it, it sort of slips through your hands. Have you ever tried to grab vapor before? It's a futile attempt. You can't do it. It's like trying to hold sand. The harder you hold, the more it goes through your palms. Gain, or Cain, on the other hand, is a different kind of human. He's one who loves self, or at least in the story, uh, and tries to grasp as much as he can. Two kinds of human. One who looks out for the shalom of his brothers, or brother, and one who doesn't. You remember God's, uh, God comes to Cain and says, Cain, where is your brother? And what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? The inference being, am I to look after the shalom of my brother? Is that my responsibility? Two different kinds of humans. One who loves and who gives and who doesn't grasp, Abel, Havel, and one who hates and grasps and tries to gain, Cain. Also very interesting to note in this story, in the Genesis account, Abel has no voice. Do you ever notice this when you're reading the story of of Cain and Abel in Genesis? Abel is only spoken of as Cain's brother, and he never speaks in the whole narrative. In John, when John references it, it's the same thing. Cain is named, and Abel doesn't even get named. It's just his brother. Interesting, he has no voice. And and, and I want to point this out because I think that the one one who's without a voice, the nameless one, the voiceless one, is, is the recipient of one of the most egregious violations that a human being could ever participate in or experience, right? the taking of one's life. So Abel, the one who has no voice in this story, has this horribly unjust act committed against him. 
And it says in, this, in the narrative in Genesis that God hears the cry of Abel's blood coming up from the ground. God hears the cry of the voiceless one, the one who has no name, the one who has no voice. Later in the story of Exodus, you, uh, God hears the cry of the Israelites while they're enslaved and in exile in Egypt. God hears the cry of the ones in Egypt, the ones who are in exile, the ones who are nameless, the ones who are voiceless. Later on in the story, Jesus, of course, hangs on a cross, and what does he do? He cries out to God, Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in the moment, it would appear that God doesn't answer Jesus, but of course we know that God does answer and resurrects Jesus, and vindicates Jesus. The point I want to make here, and I don't think this is the primary voice in this text, but I think it's absolutely at play as John writes. The tradition of of God hearing the cry of the innocent, voiceless, nameless victim is almost certainly a part of this story. And I think that's critical for us to get as people who follow Jesus, that this is the God of the Bible. This is the God revealed to us in Jesus. The one who hears the the cry of the voiceless. The one who stands with the one at the edge. The one who stands with the marginalized. The one who goes out to get the ones who are on the outside of in. This is the God of the Bible. This is Jesus. Bono said, uh, yes, Bono, you too, at a prayer breakfast long ago. He was invited to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast. And he says at one point, uh, God is with the poor, the marginalized, the broken, and the destitute, and he is with us when we are with them. Something that I think that's worth noting. Last little nugget here with Cain and Abel. Abel, John plays the, the whole martyr piece of Abel. He's a suffering martyr. And remember, who is John writing to? He's writing to a group of Christians who are on the backside of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is one of the most um, egregious violators of oppression and persecution of any empire that's ever walked the face of the planet other than ours. Rome is one of the worst violators of persecution. I mean, there are horrible, horrible stories of Christians who are dipped in wax and then lit on fire to light the gardens of Nero one of the emperors of Rome. So if we know anything about Rome, we know that they persecute Christians. This is the group of people that John's writing to. So for a group of people who are most likely suffering some kind of persecution, who have had people, members of their own community, leave and who are preaching another gospel, and often when people leave and they don't like the people they've left from, what do humans do, right? We don't, you know, shake hands and talk nicely across the fence. So this is the group of people that John's writing to, and he says, listen, Abel, is a martyr. He suffered. Luke chapter 11, verse 50 says, therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. The blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who has been killed on the altar. So the author explicitly sets up Abel as the first prophet who is martyred among many and the implication being that Jesus will be one that follows. Matthew takes this another step further in Matthew uh, 23 and says, and so upon you will come the righteous blood. The righteous blood uh, that was shed and uh, been shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So he takes it a step further and calls it the righteous blood of Abel. Point being, gang, this is the narrow way that Jesus talks about. To follow Jesus means most definitely certain deaths of all kinds. Physical, sometimes, yes. Uh, Religious, possibly. Political, social. 
The way of Jesus, and I, and I guess I want to just make sure that we note this. The way of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is one that invites us into death. It invites us into this, this participation. What does Paul say? I want, to, I want to participate with Christ in his suffering and his death so that I can participate in his resurrection. The way of Jesus is not one of blessing and of prosperity as, as far as the world goes. So um, in the event that anyone were to ever level the critique that, that uh, you know, Christians, you know, prosperity gospel stuff, you're not going to get it here, okay? Uh, the way of Jesus is a hard road, and it, and it most certainly will lead to death of any number of, uh, of kinds. So who's all in? <laughs> but this is the way of Jesus, Right? This is the way of Jesus. Which is no surprise then that in verse 13, John then goes on to say, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be shocked. If you're out in the world, if you're, if you're living as a person who follows Jesus in the world, don't be surprised that the world hates you because what John is saying is essentially, the world is of Cain and you are of Abel, right? Two different kinds of humanities. The world is of Cain. It hates, it grasps, it looks out for self. It looks for, or, uh, to gain and, and get as much as it can. This is the way of the world. This is the economy of the world. This is the as-is structure of the world that we live in. And John is saying, you are not of those people. So because of that, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if you suffer persecution. Don't be surprised if you uh, experience opposition and people who come against what you're up to and what you stand for. Don't be surprised. Because the world is not Tove, if you remember a couple weeks ago. It doesn't have the seeds of future life in it. You, on the other hand, as people who follow Jesus, you do have the seeds of future life in you. You have the goodness, the things that God made the world for, living in you, but the world doesn't get it. So don't be surprised if the world hates you, he says in verse 13. And he says that we know this in verse 14. We know this because we have passed from death to life. Now, this is the, like the theological payout in this section. This is John's kind of like, this is where it all, the fulcrum, this is the tipping point, so to speak. It all rests on this for him. He says, we, have, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And anyone who does not love remains in death. Friends, the invitation of the scriptures over and over and over and over again from God to Israel to Jesus to the Spirit, it all speaks of this message from death to life. The invitation from death to life, from darkness to light, from ashes to something beautiful. This is the invitation of God through the entirety of scripture. Jesus gets this and he kind of adds to it. He says, I'm offering you an invitation from death to another kind of death to life. But it's death to life. It's always death to life. And it's an invitation of God to participate in what he's doing and has done in Jesus. And friends, if I could, if I could stop and say anything today, if I were going to stop at any point, I'd stop right here and I would say, this is the invitation that God offers, that Jesus offers, and that we as Awaken are trying to offer as best that we can to one another death to life. For the first time, for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time. What does it mean for you to move from death to life? What are the areas of your life where it is just dead and it's dark and the gospel comes in and beckons and invites and calls you to move from death to life? And we get to become the voice of that for one another as a community. 
the invitation to move from death to life. All of this well-crafted little progression that John's walked us through. And he says, our litmus test of crossing over that you've moved from death to life, sort of the first move from death to life, to say yes to Jesus. How do we know that happens? When we love each other. Then, then of course, the question has to become, what does love look like? How do I know when I've experienced it? How do I know when I'm participating in it? And of course, John answers that question in verse 16. He says, bottom line, it always looks like Jesus. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and that we ought to do the same for our brothers and sisters. I, have a, um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Any podcasters out there? Any of you guys listen to podcasts? One of my favorite podcasts is uh, Greg Boyd, uh, Woodland Hills, teacher over in, uh, I guess, White Bear, East St. Paul area. Um, amazing, amazing preacher, uh, teacher, theologian, writer. Love the guy. And one of the things he talks about, he says, he would say it this way, you don't have to be a theologian who can parse Greek to ask, does it look like Jesus? Right? And the point being, there's a lot of technical stuff that we do, and the scriptures are sometimes very difficult to understand. But you don't have to be a Greek theologian. You don't have to have a, a PhD in studying Greek, and you don't have to be able to parse all the, the verbs to be able to ask the question, does it look like Jesus? So when you go to work and you're in a situation at work, does it look like Jesus? Is what I'm about to say, is what I'm about to do, is the action I'm about to participate in, is the, 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 the implicit participation in this thing that's going on, does it look like Jesus? When you're in family situations, you have that awkward uncle who's sitting across the table, does it look like Jesus? When you have that difficult relationship with a family member who has harmed you and wronged you and hurt you and said mean and nasty and horrible things that a dad or a mom or a brother or sister should never have said, does it look Look like Jesus is what you're about to say, what you're about to do, the action you're about to participate in, the direction you're headed. Does it look like Jesus? And he would go on to say, does it look like Calvary? Does it look like Calvary kind of love that comes under the other, that empowers the other, that never does top down, always comes up underneath the other and gives life, gives sacrificially to the other? Does it look like Calvary? Am I growing as a Christian in my ability to ascribe insurpassable worth to the other? There's a great question we should be asking about spiritual formation and discipleship. Are you growing in your capacity to ascribe unsurpassable worth to people that are different than you and who differ from you? If we're not, that's a problem. John says it always looks like Jesus. And to close in verses 17 and 18, he says, if anyone has, so now he kind of takes it, he takes this theological progression, right? He's gone from this message from the beginning, which is love one another. Let me draw on Cain and Abel and show you two different kinds of humanity. You are not of Cain. You are of Abel. You have crossed over. Here's how you know when you love each other, when you give sacrificially. How do we know? Because this is what Jesus has done. That's how we know what love looks like. Now, practically speaking, friends, okay, church members, listen up. You're having problems with this. Let me address it. He says, if anyone has possessions and you have material goods, you have bios uh, cosmos, you have uh, like actual stuff of the world and you have, a, you have uh, material possessions and somebody has a need and you can meet it and you don't, how can the love of God be in you? That's essentially what he says. How can the love of God be in you? Not a rhetorical question. It can't. It isn't. And then he goes on in, in this last verse. But I want to just pull out one little piece here in, in verse 17 that's, that's critical. It, it, his exhortation hangs on this, and it has to do with one word. And it's translated differently in a couple different translations, and I think the King James actually totally nails it. Um, here's a couple of different ways this gets translated. The word uh, is 
in, in the NIV that we read, it's, uh, he has no pity on them, right? So the NLT translates the same way. The NASB says, closes his heart against him, uh, International Standard, who withholds compassion from them. In the King James, right, get this, shutteth up his bowels from him. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad you're all shutting your bowels towards me. Thank you very much, right? Okay, this is church. We're not going to do that. But the King James, shutteth up his bowels from him. And another one, shutteth up compassion from him. The word that's being translated that the King James gets the best is this Greek word, splang, uh, let's see if I've got it here. I think I do. Splegnon, and it means bowels, guts, intestines, uh, like the, the, the inner viscera of who you are, okay? Now, in our culture, we kind of, we live from two different places. One is uh, like our head. We differentiate between our head and our heart. In our head, we disagree, we agree. We affirm something, we disavow something. Mentally, we say yes to something, we say no to something, uh, any number of different things. And so these are the things that we say we believe, right? I affirm this, I disavow that. I believe this, I don't believe that. These are all things that happen here. And then this is where I live from. This is like, my beliefs are the things that drive what I do and, and, and how I live in the world. My heart is where I feel. My heart's where I experience something. I, I, I get intuition and emotion from my heart. Now the ancients, and for certain John, would have never made this distinction between head and heart. It's, in fact, it's a terrible distinction. Um, and number two, the word that John uses, this splagnon, is uh, your guts or your insides. And essentially what he's saying is the place from which you really, truly live. So retranslate the passage, John says, essentially, if you can shut your splagnon, you're like the essence of who you are, the seat of where you live from. If you can shut that to another human being who has a need when you can meet the need, how can the love of God be in you? To deny one human to another, for me as a human, to deny my humanity from another who has need, this is the antithesis of what it means to be human, and it's the antithesis of what it means to follow Jesus. That's what John's saying. He goes on to say, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. So let's wrap this up, right? I've been reading this passage over and over and over and over and over again in preparation for this morning. And I'll be, I'll be really frank with you and honest. I cannot stop coming back to, I can't stop reading verse 18. I mean, what does John say? Look at it. Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Uh, I grew up in a pretty uh, conservative evangelical church. And um, most of my upbringing, as it relates to like, how do I live as a Christian in the world? I remember, I remember very vividly because it was talked about a lot, this word uh, apologetic. Anybody know what apologetics is? Anyone? Anyone? It has nothing to do with apologizing or that band. It's too late to apologize. Right? It's not that. Who is that, by the way? Who? One Republic. Thank you very much. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Apologetics is the art and, and science of defending your faith. Okay? 
So the big bad world out there is kind of like offering these critiques of Christianity and of, of, of Jesus and the Bible. And so I got to prepare. I got to sort of like, you know, uh, <coughs> excuse me. I need, to, I need to hone my skills and my ability to articulate to sort of refute the critiques that are coming. And this was a, this was a big deal. I went to a conference in, in high school called, it was an apologetics training conference for students. Like, how do you defend your faith? How do you answer the questions that the critics might ask? Now, friends, hear this, okay? I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think that you should be able to engage in conversation and um, coherent dialogue with people who have different opinions than you. I affirm that. I think that's great. I think we should say, yes, let's do that. But this idea of defending my faith and my defense of the faith, my ability to defend what I believe and say, I I believe these things about Jesus and the resurrection in the Bible for these reasons was pretty much in this category of whether or not or or honing my ability to articulate the arguments, right? The the propositions, the things that were true. I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't affirm truth. I do. It's a good thing. But I'm saying when we talk about apologetics and how do we defend, how do we answer a question from somebody who's outside of faith, who's far from God, who, has, who, who doesn't know Jesus? How do, we, how do we engage in dialogue? And the predominant answer to that for us as evangelicals has been apologetics, right? This ability to defend my faith, to articulate my faith. I want to say, oh, oh furthermore, uh, I was thinking about a couple of books, right? Things that, like books that I would, you know, if, if there was something that kind of like, you know, over the last 30 years, like a book that just kind of rises up, you know, out of Christendom and out of Christianity, I kept thinking evidence that demands a verdict, right? Josh McDowell, great book, great guy, loves Jesus, wants to follow Jesus. Not what I'm arguing, not what I'm sort of pinpointing, but what I am pinpointing is evidence that demands a verdict, right? The the modern day version of this is the case for Christ. Um, I find that truly ironic, When John says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Does anyone find that ironic? That the predominant way that the church has offered apologetics training has been with what? Words. Our ability to defend the faith, to articulate our faith. I'm not saying we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's never what I want to do. I always want to, if the pendulum has swung one way, I don't want to swing to the other, but I want to say, is there a balance in the middle somewhere that we can find? And I think in order to get towards that, I want to offer this idea as I close. What does an embodied apologetic look like? Embodied, right? Philippians 2 says that Jesus, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, Notice the word, not of Cain, grasp, gain. Doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but makes himself a servant, becomes like a servant, becomes a human, and becomes a servant and obedient unto death on the cross. What does Jesus do? He embodies what God is about. He gives God flesh and blood, a frame, a name, skin and bones. This is what God does. This is what Jesus does. He makes God present in a very real and visceral, splagnani kind of way. And I want to say that that is the most compelling and beautiful and articulate defense of the gospel we could ever offer the world. Friends, can I invite this community To, yeah, be sharp, to be clear, to be articulate, yes. 
and to be people who embody the presence of Jesus in the world by the way in which we love and serve and give ourselves away. That we take the route, that we take, follow the road, we take the, the cue of the one that we say we follow, this Jesus, and offer an embodied apologetic of the gospel, right? It's business party Sunday. So what is the vision of Awaken? Why do we exist to demonstrate and announce the way of Jesus in the world? Can I just remind you and encourage you that this is what this community is about? This is, this is the invitation. I think this is the invitation of God through Jesus and the spirit to the church. Embody this thing that happened on Calvary and the resurrection power that comes with it in the world in a way that is compelling and beautiful. What does Paul call it? He says, you are an aroma, a sweet-smelling aroma in the world. How many, how many people outside of the church do you know that talk about Christians that way? <laughs> the answer is not many. Okay. At least not, I haven't found too many. So friends, John, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. Love one another. How will the world know that, that we love Jesus? By our radical and self-sacrificial love for one another and for the world. This is what I'm inviting you into. This is what this community is about. So when one person falls or one person goofs up or they, they misstep, what we don't do is beat them down and send them out. You know, They don't become the scapegoat that we sort of release the valve with. Rather, that's what the world does. That's what the world has been doing for thousands and thousands of years. Jesus' communities stand against that, in opposition to that, in the way of that, and say, no, we don't send them out and scapegoat them and make them the, 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 the receiver of all of our whatever. We say, welcome. We, we say, stand back up. Let's gather around you. Let's give you another chance. Let's, let's encourage you. Let's challenge you to become the person God's made you, created you to be. That's what Christian community does. And when that happens, wow right? Because it stands totally in opposition to the way the world works, to the as-is structures that exist. That's redemption. That's rescue. That's what resurrection does in a community like this. And that is what I want to invite you to. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.